You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. Good morning. How are y'all doing today? It's a pleasure to greet y'all. My name is Scott Mahan. I am the director of 514 Student Ministries. And uh, I hope you're having a good one. Hope you're not rooting for the Chiefs. That's just a personal bias, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, so here at Providence, we have a simple vision that doesn't make the gospel unignorable in our community. And to that end, each and every single week, we open up the scriptures because we believe is the only way that we can know, worship, and obey Jesus. And today we're going to be continuing our series uh, called Revival and Reformation. We want to be people who return to God and in so doing are reaching out to the world around us. We're going to be out of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. It's going to take you a second to get there because I bet you haven't opened in a while. Uh, but <laughs> if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. There should be a black Bible underneath the uh, seat around you. And if you don't own it, a Bible, uh, that can be a gift from us to you. So again, we're going to be in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. If you're able, please stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're going to be in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. Providence. Hear the word of the Lord. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I promise this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And especially if it's your first time, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for making us a part of your week. We hope you enjoy yourself with us this morning. We get to celebrate baptisms uh, today at this gathering. So we're really excited about that. And uh, we're headed in that direction. Like Scott said, we're finishing up a series that we started in January called uh, Reformation and Revival. Finishing that up this morning as well as our members meeting this evening will be breaking fast together from uh, this January. So what I want to do before I pray is kind of give a quick recap in case you haven't been here, uh, what this this January sermon series has been all about, uh, so that at least it makes sense a little bit to the direction that I'm going to take us uh, for the rest of the morning. In our first sermon, we talked about the nature of revival, because when you say the word revival, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about it, and they might, you know, you might think that maybe I'm going to purchase a big tent for the church and begin to send out flyers, you know, to kick this off. But we, we wanted to talk about, you know, what is revival? How does it come about? And why should we seek it? Uh, we are not under the conviction, um, biblically speaking, that human beings can plan or contrive or engineer revival, but nonetheless, that we should pursue it. Um, and that the Bible itself is a repute with regular revivals of God's spirit as he comes near. And then the next week, Ty talked about the message of revival. What's at the core of revival, that which precedes it, and then also that which continues the engines churning. And we made the case that the person and work of Christ, particularly being justified before God by his blood as a gift, by grace through faith, that this is the core message uh, that ultimately runs revival. And then last week, we talked about 
the first result of revival, what comes of it, what's God's desire. And we talked about personal holiness. And my plea with you last week was, once again, just like the word revival, to not immediately hear holiness and think that what I meant was stodginess or puritanical or whatever that may be. I think that's kind of hard on the Puritans. I don't even think the Puritans were as puritanical as they get a bad rap for. But nonetheless, we talked about the beauty of holiness, that when God invites us to be holy as he is holy, he's inviting us into all of life, joy, blessing, peace, that everything that our heart so desires in its actual ordinate and true sense is found in Christ and in his invitation into that life of holiness. And this morning, what I want to focus on is the last sermon, the last piece, which is the call from God out of revival for reformation and restoration in all of the world. I'll say that again, the call from God out of the voice of revival to restore and reform the world itself. So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray and I want to ask for the Lord's help because this is a unique sermon and I have a lot to say and I always feel like I have a little time to do it. So Let me pray, and if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that. Father, we're so grateful, first and foremost, that we have the privilege to come freely and to worship you in song. Thank you for the band that leads us faithfully, but even more so than that, I thank you that your promised presence is here among us, that you love us, that you're near to us now. We thank you that your word's been preserved, and that we have the great opportunity and privilege to be able to submit under its authority. Help us to hear so that your word would lead us to you, Jesus. Minister to us now as each of us has need. Speak to our hearts as only you can, my God, and use my weak, feeble attempts to produce a 30, a 60, a hundredfold harvest by your matchless grace and glory, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, like Scott joked, You probably haven't turned to some of the books we've turned to in the last four weeks regularly. This next one is Amos. And uh, this one's actually for good reason, because if you read through Amos, it's nine and a half chapters that are pretty tough words from the prophet. Amos is a minor prophet, and uh, it's important that we know, and you probably heard me say this before, minor prophet does not mean JV prophet. Minor prophet just means shorter book, okay? So it's not like Amos wanted to be a prophet like Ezekiel but he didn't make the cut, you know, and him and his other 12 buddies, you know, they went into the, the D league and they didn't make it to the NBA of prophets. Um, just means shorter. Okay. And Amos prophesied at a time about, about a generation or so, 40 to 60 years before Israel went into exile. Now, as another historical reminder, oftentimes we, in shorthand, we say Israel for the people of God in the old Testament. But that becomes difficult after Solomon's reign because actually the kingdom itself split into two different northern and southern kingdoms. And so oftentimes you might read in your Bibles, particularly the Old Testament, and you'll see, well, did they go into Babylonian captivity or was it Assyrian captivity? This seems to be confusing. It's because there's two kingdoms and they went to two different places at two different times. Israel, the northern tribes that split off during the reign of Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, they went to exile first to Assyria. And Judah lasted out longer, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they went to Babylonian captivity later. But here, Amos is prophesying to that 10 tribes, that northern kingdom. And here he has a lot to say, a lot of tough things to say for the first nine and a half chapters. One of the particular beefs that he has with the people is that they keep celebrating that the day of the Lord's coming. And they tell each other, the day of the Lord's on the way. And they've become very idolatrous people, but they still have this thought in their minds, when the day of the Lord comes, all of our enemies will be quenched. 
When the day of the Lord comes, the enemies of God will be vanquished. And they're right about this, but Amos just wants to pique their interest by saying, you have become one of the enemies. He says, because of your idolatry, you're no longer friends with God, but you're going to be just on the same side as the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the, you know, the various different gods. And that's his big issue. They're unaware that this impending reality for their enemies are also, is also an impending reality for them. Now, it's true that within a generation, Israel does get carried off. But what passage did we pick up? These four verses are extremely positive. And honestly, if they weren't there, it would have been a very gloomy book, you know? It would have been like reading a Russian novel, you know? It's good and it's great prose, but don't go to it for chipperness, you know? You don't go to it for an uplift. It's not happily ever after. It's happily ever never. And Amos does the exact opposite here. He says, there's going to be a great glorious revival and reformation after this judgment. God's not going to leave them to their destruction. He will do good to them. He will revive and reform the people, and they will experience great blessings. And the biggest thing is he will do it himself. He will oversee this project. This is important for us to note. All of God's judgment, both in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, his discipline on even us as his children, has a singular purpose, and that is to do us good. That his aim is to do good. God is not merely a disinterested or it's not coincidental that good things may come to us. He is a providential father. He has a fatherly interest in us that, to do good to us. And the aim of God has been since Genesis to do good to the creation that he made. That sin has come in and destroyed and wreaked havoc. And man's will also has contributed to it. But God's intention is to do good. And this is important for us to note that when we read the Bible and there are judgments and there are many, that the aim of the judgments is to rouse a sleeping world to come back to the Lord to find blessing. That ultimately judgment has a twofold purpose. One is justice, of course, just like a child may deserve a punishment for an act. So we too, as children deserve that as well. And yet there's a, there's a second aim. And that is to keep us from continuing down the path that will lead to worse. An example of this may be like the Tower of Babel, where God comes down and confuses the languages. Why? Not because they wouldn't be successful, but because they would be. And in that success, they would find themselves further and further in self-condemnation and apart from God. And so he scatters them as a judgment, but also as a grace. Does this make sense? How about the garden? God sends them out of the garden and exiles them. It's a judgment, but it's also a grace. Because what if our first parents had in their sinful state taken hold of the tree of life and eaten and then eternally been fallen? But they do not. God puts a sword in the garden and keeps them out so that he might redeem them. Something we have to remember is that our, the character and nature of our God is that his face turns towards us for blessing. Now, we've talked about for the last three weeks, revival, its nature, its message, its resultant holiness in God's people. But perhaps the most important takeaway from the book of Amos here and the last aim of this series for us this January is to discuss the work of God, the labor of God, the reformation of God. And we'll talk about what that means. What ultimate purpose God's in God intends in the earth? What is he up to? Not just what was he up to in the first century in Jerusalem. What is he up to now? How will he do it? What does it mean for us? 
You see, the book of Amos is very Israel-centric. He's an Israeli prophet who's speaking to Israel about a time that's coming within a generation. But because this is a prophetic book, and you need to understand this with biblical interpretation, because it's a prophetic book, we also essentially must look beyond Israel for its ultimate fulfillments. This is not always the case, but it is often the case. If God gives these grandiose promises to Israel, it's most likely that there will be an event that will happen in the near term, but that he's pointing to an event that might happen through his son, Jesus Christ. There's a fulfillment on the way, and it comes in one way. It only comes in Christ Jesus himself. God's intent from the fall of the garden with our first parents, is a grandiose and cosmic revival and reformation of all things. The proclamation of the gospel is that everything that needed to be accomplished in order for this revival and this reformation to kick off happened at the cross and the resurrection. This is why the message of justification is essential. If we can't see and savor the work of God on the cross, it's going to be tough for us to be empowered and engaged in the work of that message. But at the great commission, God set his disciples about the business of doing a specific work. That work is what Amos is talking about here. God intends to fulfill this passage in Amos across the whole earth through the name of Jesus Christ. And you may be saying, well, okay, how does that work? Well, the starting line was that 2000 years ago, something happened that changed the world forever. And it didn't just change the world forever in a theoretical sense, like you read a book last week that changed your world forever. It's not what I mean. I don't mean that Christianity changed my world forever, although it did. I mean the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the world forever, and it can never be the same. 2,000 years ago, a man died, was buried in the grave, and that was altogether normal. Because guess what? We all go through that. I know it seems morbid, but every single day, you and I wake up in a graveyard. There's bones everywhere, okay? We've all lived and died, and so have our ancestors and, our, and their ancestors and their ancestors and their ancestors, except for one man who just so happened to be the God-man. God made flesh. He went into the ground, and then he came back alive. And when he came back alive, nothing else could ever be the same. He told his disciples as much. And if it, as if that was not fantastic enough, then he announced to his disciples that he had an intention with this grandiose power of his. He intended to do the same thing that he had done for himself for all of creation. He was about the business of resurrecting things. He wanted to take dead things and make them alive. To give you an example of an Old Testament prophet that speaks of this, there's an old prophet. He's a major prophet, varsity, okay? His name's Ezekiel. And God gives him a vision It's one of these weird visions. He not only sees it, but it's almost like he's transported. He's like there. Takes him to a graveyard. And God says, son of man, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Now, I don't care if you are charismatic. That's an intense moment. And what do you say? Ezekiel says what probably is the wisest answer of all time. Only you know, Lord. He says, then God tells him, prophesy to the dry bones, son of man. Tell them to stand up and live. That would have been an awkward moment. You've probably been in awkward moments where somebody's asked you to maybe share the gospel. Or, or you know when your mom comes to you and finds out that you're Christian and then she's got a friend and she's like, tell them about it. Is that just me that that's happened to? It's awkward, isn't it? Prophesy to the dry bones and make them live, Ezekiel. 
And then what happens in the vision is sinew to sinew. The bones start coming up out of the grave, start to have flesh on them, and these dry bones begin to live. Jesus shows up after his resurrection and says, you need to go out and go proclaim that I'm alive and that because I'm alive, they're made alive. Just tell them that it's true. Tell them, be reconciled to God. He's already made you reconciled with him. Be reconciled to God and believe in him. And you got to imagine the disciples are like, how does that work? Until they did it and it worked. You sit here because it worked, not because you understand how it worked. Oh, I know we try to understand how it works. And then we argue about how it works. And we write books about how it works. And then we write books about arguing about how it works. And then we write books about people that argued about how it works. But you don't know how it works. You just know that you heard Jesus died and came back alive. And then he said, you're alive. And then you were. And you don't know, it doesn't make sense how. If you tried to pinpoint when you decided to believe, you might even look at yourself prior to that and think, I I said to myself, I'd never believe such a crazy thing. And now you know that it's so. And Jesus said, I'm going to employ you to go out and proclaim this reality to all the creation. I'm going to make dead things come alive. First, God calls us to himself in revival. Then he displays his intent and purpose to restore the whole of the world back to himself. And finally, he sends us out to help him in that work of reformation. And by that word reformation, I mean something very simple. We are to be called to reform back to that which God originally intended for us to be when he formed us the first time. All of the nations will come back as God originally intended for our first parents. God had an intent when he created Adam and Eve. It was thwarted through the serpent and our own will, but God will not be thwarted. He will have his world. He will have his children. He'll have his people and he'll love them. God looks at you like a father that says, I'm going to do you good and you can't say no. I'm going to do good to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to lay down my whole life for you. You can't deny it. And then, of course, there will be those that may deny. But see, this is the key that we can exclude ourselves from such a thing. But God has no intention of that exclusion. Maybe most important, we must say this. We're called to engage in the work of reformation if you're a Christian in the room. And therefore, we must, not might, not it's a good idea, not I have a sign-up sheet in the lobby. We must find our place in this labor. We are so employed, whether we know it or not. You, if you're a Christian in the room, hear me. I don't care that you haven't gotten your pay stubs. You've been employed by the king. He has so employed you when he called you to himself. The idea that you and I are mere spectators in this game is erroneous. It has never been true. It never will be true. The the idea that the only people that really work for God are weirdos like me who get paid by the church is crazy. It is not biblical. There is no merit for it. We have been so employed by the king. We've been given marching orders. We've been sent. And listen to me. Paul says it's the only labor that will matter one day when we stand before him. He said one day when you and I stand before God, all other labors will be tested by fire and it'll burn up wood, hay, stubble, all the meritless stuff. And then there's that labor which we did in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving glory to God the Father through him. And it will be gold and silver and costly precious stones. So, in short, we must recognize that we've been so endowed with this call, this labor to build the kingdom of God, reform, rebuild the cities. Let's look at what God says in Amos. I'm going to read through them. 
verses 11 through 15. God says, after this long reminder that the judgment's coming, he says, but in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now, I want to make mention the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, translates that the remnant of Adam, meaning the remnant of all mankind. And I think that fits better with the next line, which says, and all the nations who are called by my name. You ever thought that maybe Jesus was the only one who liked us Gentiles? But the Old Testament seems like God's got a specific only interest in the Israelites. You must read the Bible to see that Israel's purpose was to bless all the nations of the earth back, draw them back underneath the king's authority. And God's promising here that he's going to do that, and he's going to do it through what? Through the booth of David. That's like a, the worst superhero hero movie title of all time, isn't it? Like who's going to be the hero that brings them all back? The Booth of David, you know? Okay, here's what you need to know. Booth, if you ever see Feast of Booths in your Bible, is Tabernacle, Feast of Tabernacles. So the Tabernacle of David's going to show up. Who's the Tabernacle of David? Well, I believe the writer of the Gospel, John, knew exactly who it was, which is why he says in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what the actual translation is. Our Bibles say dwelt among us. But the actual translation is tabernacled among us. John wants you to know Amos was talking about Jesus, that the booth of David was Jesus, and he would show up in his tabernacle of flesh, yet he was God in the flesh, and that he would bring all the nations back to him. And what will he bring them back to do? Well, let's continue reading. Behold, the days are coming, verse 13 declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So first is that God promises a day of harvest that is so intense that as the man gets up in the, in the sowing time and begins to go out to sow, he runs into the man who's still reaping the harvest because he don't, they don't have enough people in the field to get the harvest. So they run over each other. Now remember what Jesus said to his disciples when they said, Lord, send us more people that there might be a harvest of souls. And you know what Jesus said? You don't need to pray for the harvest. The harvest is already white. You need to pray for laborers. There's not enough of them. Think of this. Christ was predicting a day where he would already go before us and that this work of redemption and restoration and revival and reformation, he was doing the heavy labor that we just needed to pray that there'd be more laborers because if not, we're going to be running into the seed sower or rather running into the reaper. The seed sower is going out there thinking he's got to do this work of preaching the gospel. And in reality, there's just so many people that are ready for harvest because God's done the legwork. They shall rebuild cities and inhabit them. What are cities? Cities are hubs of civilization. And I told the 9 a.m., I loved that Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says, we should get it out of our heads that one day the city of God in eternity will not be well-peopled. Well-peopled, that's it. What he means is we have to get it out of our heads that there's this uh, small little group of people that, 
you know, God intends to, to do good to. And then everything else, it's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah, baby. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be bad. It's going to be. No, what the Bible tells us in a very, uh, in a portion of scripture that I think has been widely misinterpreted. Um, and, and don't let me offend you here. Hopefully you get the major point is there's this, there's this verse in the book of Revelation about 144,000. And it says that, uh, God, that John hears an angel say 12,000 for this tribe and 12,000 for this tribe and 12,000 for this tribe and 12,000 for these 12 tribes, making 144,000. And so there's a lot of different arguments. So who are the 144,000? And once again, we get to, is this varsity and the JV's over here? And who are these guys? You know, or is it only that many? Because then we're kind of looking around, we're like evangelism. I might pull back on that. I'm just talking ratios. And, and what we miss is what happens immediately after that. It says, John says, then and I turned. And what did I see? I saw myriads upon myriads, a host too great to number. It's 12,000 from the 12 tribes because the Old Testament regularly, along with the New, symbolizes these numerical values of completeness. The 12 tribes of Israel will be the whole of Israel, which is God's people, all of God's people will be represented in the kingdom of God in the end. And how many does that represent? More than you could ever count. You need, a, you need a better calculator. You can't see how many it will be. Or as Matthew Henry put it, it will be well-peopled. We're a well-peopled people. And that work of reformation is us going out recognizing that your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord and you wish that they know the Lord, but you also have the sneaking suspicion in the back of your mind that there's never a chance that they might ever do so. You should remember this and know that we are a well-peopled people and it's likely that they are. It's likely that they are. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wines, make gardens and eat their fruit. You notice in all of this, God's going to do this glorious work, but do you notice that people still have jobs? It's crazy, right? Why do you keep saying that there's plowmen and there's, there's reapers, there's people sowing seeds, but God's the one doing the work. It's because God has an intention to do this glorious thing and bring about its result. And you know who he's going to do it through? People like you and me. Don't ask me why. I've asked the Lord this many times why he decided that I might be a person that would be a mouthpiece for him. Because if there's one thing that I struggle with, it's saying things I ought not. If you've been here for long enough, you know this. That's why your children have, have ruined holidays before by saying things I ought not. But you know, as I've grown older, I've realized why God would do such a thing. And here's what I've come up with, at least so far, is I believe God enjoys us to join him in this work of reformation, just like I enjoy having my kids with me, even though I know they might not actually help that much. And in some ways they get in the way. It's because they're mine. And I like them being with me. And I like teaching them. And they get a little better sometimes and get me angry a little bit at times. But they're mine and I like them being with me. And if I'm going to be about a certain work, then by its very nature, well, they should be about that work with me. Okay. Now, last thing. I need to get to this last point because it's the most important. We still got to do baptisms. <laughs> As is pretty typical. I want to say, if it be true that the work of reformation that comes from revival, that revival gives birth to, is to be motivated by this moment of the resurrection, that if Christ is alive, then everything's different. If Christ is alive, then everything's changed. If Christ is alive and he's making other people alive, then we can't live our lives the same anymore. And hear me, I want to make this case abundantly clear. I'm not wrong about this. 
Paul says it even as much in 2 Corinthians. He says something like this. You and I are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. We no longer regard one another according to the flesh. Why? Because we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. Then he died. Then he came to life again in a new body. And he did crazy things like appearing to people and then disappearing, breaking bread, and then not being there. Walking seven miles, having a good joke with people, and then showing up seven miles elsewhere. He walked through walls. Seems odd. Christ is alive and everything's changed. And that is supposed to be that motivating factor. Now, if this be true, and Christ is walking with us to give us this vision of his kingdom, then I have a few questions to pose and then some practical advice. The first is, what kind of families ought we to have? If we're to be saturated by this vision of Christ's kingdom, what would a Christian family look like? If that Christian family existed for the purpose of Jesus and his kingdom. I'll ask one for myself. What kind of father should I be? Not in relation to my neighbor, but if Christ has so employed me as a father to my children, how should I father? What kind of mothers? How should we raise our children in light of it? When we gather to sing and take of the Lord's Supper, in what manner should we sing? In what manner should we take of the supper? How about this? If the Lord were here among us, and he is, how would he lead us? How should we train our children, our teenagers? How should we train and send missionaries, fund them, plant churches? How about this? What kind of schools ought to exist if Christians were to lead them? What kind of hospitals? Some of you are in the medical industry, and I, you know, a good reminder, especially in the United States of America, is do you know where this began, modern hospitals? It began with some Christians who took this seriously. That's why you have things like St. Luke's. Who is this St. Luke? He comes from somewhere. What kind of buildings, if Christians were to build them, should we have? What kind of artwork? Young people, I want you to listen to me. What kind of books ought you to write as you grow older if you're a Christian? And Christ has employed you so to do. What kind of poetry? What kind of home should we have or yards? How should we treat our pets or our animals? What kind of technology? What engines? What business? What commerce? What economy? What government? What finance? What feast should we have as Christians? What kind of life ought we to have? Some may ask, what can I do for the kingdom, Cord? And I've heard this before. Like, how can I serve the church? What is, it to, what is, what is there for somebody like me to do? And I want to say, this is not a bad question. It often comes with a wonderful posture. And I want to say, I love you. And I thank you for that question. We always try to make some areas available, you know, and some people say they're not as available as they ought. And I take that criticism truly. But I want to answer this question with perhaps the most important thing that I'll say toward the end of where should I serve? What should I do for the kingdom? Simply everything. Everything you do, do it for the glory of Christ. Every single thing. Colossians chapter 3 verse 17 tells us, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And we think that Paul was just giving throwaway super Christian language. No, he's giving you the key to unlock Christian life. If we were to do all things as the Christ had employed us to so do them, what you would get is glory. What you would get is beauty. What you would get is fields full of harvest, so full of harvest that you couldn't even, you'd run over the sower. What you'd get is mountains dripping with wine. What you'd get is church service filled with glory, inexpressible. You'd get this weird mixture of repentance and mourning with joy and laughing. 
He'd get restoration and healing and love. And so these last things that I want to say are practical things. If we are to be laborers, and I'm making the case that we are, and I don't think I'm wrong, then how should we become skilled laborers? Can we get better at it? And I think the answer is yes. We talked as elders recently, and I said, I think there's some basic principles of the Christian faith that I often, and and you might have found yourself doing this, not even just with Christianity, but maybe anything, you find yourself just assuming that people know what you're talking about. You ever do that? You're having a conversation. You assume everybody knows what you're talking about. Everybody looks at you kind of side eyes, but they're like overly nice. They're way too nice to tell you like you sound, there's kids in the room, you know? And, and that happens to me often. And I, we talked as elders, said, hey, maybe there's some simple principles that the Bible is just chalked full of. It's just, it's everywhere. And, and they're, they're principles about how to walk with Jesus and labor in the fields. So here they are uh, in no particular order of importance. Here's five of them, okay? And you could take these to the bank and I hope they're helpful. Number one, we always reap what we sow. We always reap what we sow. Galatians chapter six, verse seven says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Now, this is not karma. As we will see, God is a gracious God. And sometimes, oftentimes, he uproots the silly things that you and I sow. But nonetheless, the principle stands. We sow seeds in two major ways, our words and our deeds, the things we say and the way in which we act. So an example of this would be like, if your home is one of the vineyards that Jesus is talking about wanting to reform, he wants to see blessing in this home. If you sow anger and bitterness in your home, friends, you will reap it in due time. If we sow faithlessness and doubt, we will reap it. Young couples especially, listen to me when I say this. If you remind your spouse of all of his or her faults regularly, even when they're true, you will reap the vices that you are bringing light to. You focus on their vices or their sins, you'll reap it because it's your entire focus. This is the kind of man that you are. You are a lazy, good-for-nothing, schlubbish, we have kids in the room, okay? And guess what you will reap? The very thing that you're sowing. Husbands, they speak to their wives, you are not like my mom. My mom did all these great things and you do not so great things. And you are, boom, 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 boom. This is what you'll reap, Because why? You are calling to life the very things that you wish didn't exist, or at least you say that you do. Choose to sow life instead. Choose to, not just with your words, but with your actions, choose to sow life instead. If the vineyard is at work, if you sow disgruntled disappointment among your coworkers, you will reap the same. Every seed, Jesus tells us, bears fruit after its kind. Never forget this. The skilled laborer for reformation understands this principle and so takes care of what is sown. It's never too late to uproot weeds that you've sown. Listen to me. If you feel discouraged right now, don't be discouraged. It's never too late to roll up your sleeves and get back in the garden. Pull up some of these weeds. God promises, in fact, to help you and to bring you a great harvest, which outpaces the sowing if you sow life and truth and beauty and goodness. So get about the business of sowing some good and get into that garden and pull some of the weeds. What you'll find is that God's a much better gardener than you. And if you petition him for help, you'll look behind you and it'll be like Buddy the Elf on Christmas with how much he did while you were trying to work on, you know, your little toy. Just quick. Number two, foundations matter. Foundations matter. Now, as you get older and older, Many of the foundations have already been set, but this does not mean that you cannot do foundation work because you're later in life. In fact, that's ridiculous. 
It just means the work's going to be a little more arduous, as if you've ever had a house and you had to do foundation work after the house was built. You know this, right? Costs a lot. It's crazy how they do it, honestly, but, but you can do it, and it's necessary to do. Foundations are starting lines for buildings, and the Bible's filled with admonitions about securing a firm foundation. The Bible's clear about Jesus being that foundation and also gives him the title of being the cornerstone. Listen to me. Friendships have foundations. Marriages have foundations. Organizations have foundations. Clubs have foundations. Churches, groups, businesses, institutions, they're all over the place. Anything you build has to have a foundation. And what are foundations? They are truths that hold arbitrating power and authority upon which everything else is decided and built. So your marriage built upon the foundation of Christ means not that the husband has full carte blanche dictatorial power and authority. No, the husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church, but the wife submits to her husband, how? As to the Lord, meaning the Lord's the foundation. He's the ultimate arbitrator. And if wives, you have a husband who loves the Lord Jesus, you can be very secure. But husbands, hear me when we find ourselves trying to be our own leaders and not having a firm foundation and becoming our own ruler, our own canon of what's right and wrong. It's no wonder that our wives perhaps may feel a little insecure in those moments. You know why? Because you're not as great as you may think you are in those moments. In fact, your track record is not as great as God's. And so if we are on a firm foundation, we can have health, but the opposite is also true. And foundations matter. Have you ever wondered why Paul's so adamant about not being unequally yoked? You ever thought about this? It's a foundational issue. He's saying at the very starting line, someone else is going to be the arbiter other than the Lord Jesus if you marry someone who doesn't know Jesus. And this is going to be troublesome at the jump. So check the foundation of things regularly. What's built on him? Are our decisions being made to line up with the cornerstone? Everything else needs to be lined up with. Have we consulted him? These things are important. If you're going to build, check the foundations. Number three, patience and steadfastness are essential to the labor. Patience and steadfastness are essential to the labor. The work of building is slow if it's going to last. Just like the vineyard and the garden requires patience if it's going to bear fruit. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, that's sowing seed, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So just recently in Houston, we had a summer filled with what? Tons of heat, no rain. Okay? In your life, you will have the summers of tons of heat, no rain. And you'll look back at all the seeds that you've sown, and you'll be like, they're getting scorched. And you'll despair. You may even decide that you're not going to go out there and water anymore because, you know, you might get arrested. And, uh, you know, you're using too much water, and uh, it's against the HOA rules. Um, but the Bible tells you, no, don't do that. Keep being faithful. And a great example of this is my wife and I had two trees that were just about dead. One was huge and it was dead completely because it was getting scorched. And I thought, honestly, I was about to call someone to come and cut this tree down because if it falls the wrong way, it could be my house or my truck or you know how this goes. Anything that you don't want to fall on, that's where it would head. And my wife decided instead, upon advice from her dad, that she was going to take a water hose and she was going to just literally let this water hose trickle nonstop. Not very much water, but just continuous. And what happened is over time, even though it was scorching hot, we saw one green leaf. And I was like, it's happening. (laughs) And then two, and then three, and this thing's alive. The whole tree came back to life for this trickling of water. Faithful, steady, nonstop stream of dripping water. And God tells us that in different seasons of life, don't grow weary in well-doing. 
You must be steadfast and patient. Trust the Lord. Don't give in. Number four, avoid self-sabotage. Now, my thought process on this one was actually to focus on reminding you that there will be opposition to your work. But as I thought about it more, I think I've talked to our church about that a lot recently. I think you know that. There is spiritual opposition. But oftentimes we forget that we can become our own worst enemies. We're laboring towards something, and the Bible says, like a woman who tears down the house that she's building. You know, wives have a very intentional and beautiful gift about building homes, and oftentimes they end up tearing down that very home through reasons unbeknownst even to them. And men, we can do the same thing. I don't know if it's times and seasons, maybe it's a lack of patience or a spiritual absence of blindness, but we start tearing down or burning up the fields that we've been laboring in. This happens when we do things like we start to tear down our neighbor's work in the church. Maybe it's making fun of, mocking, belittling, gossiping about. And here's what we forget. The Bible tells us we are of one body. You can't light on fire the guy's room next door because you live in the same house. Or let me put it another way. You can't tear their kitchen down and expect not to be impacted by it. It's like, ha ha, look at your kitchen. It's your kitchen too. This is no more true than in your marriage. See this, you attack your, your husband or your wife and you know what Jesus' number one principle was about marriage is the union of marriage. The, the two shall become one flesh. That's what God said in the garden. So now you're making fun of yourself. You're mocking yourself. You're pointing and you're harming yourself is ultimately what you're doing. You got to ask yourself, you know, what, when we gossip about each other, what does it say about our family? Because we're all one family, right? So don't fall into self-sabotage. And in particular, thinking that uh, the friendly fire is not a big deal. Because what happens is the enemy lies to us and makes us think if our neighbor's not doing as good as us, it makes us feel better. So we can make everyone look at them and how poorly they're doing. And it might make you, well, eyes off of you, or at least if somebody looks at you, it doesn't look as bad. But the reality is it's tearing down the hole. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 This is what Paul says. If one member suffers of the body, all suffer together. But guess what? The opposite is true. If one member's honored, all rejoice together. So do you know what you can do? Is when you honor another brother, you receive the honor too because you're united to them. You encourage a brother or sister, you're encouraged. You see how this works? And self-sabotage is forgetting this principle. Self-sabotage is burning down the fields that you're sowing seeds in. Okay, last one, perhaps the most important, God builds and God gives the increase. God gives, or God builds and God gives the increase. Psalm 127 verse one says, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. There's so many implications to this one, but I'll just give you a handful. Projects that do not have their designer and builder as God will always lead to failure. It doesn't matter if you think it's a great idea. Read the Old Testament and see how often Moses is asking God whether or not they should even go to the next step in the wilderness. Just They're seeking out God's face, seeking out God's desire. Check with the superintendent before you start pouring a foundation. Second, prayer is essential to any labor. Why? Because crops need rain, buildings need resources, and you and I have neither. We need the Lord. So prayer is essential in the labor. And what you'll find out is that it's not essential in labor in that God is just our resource center, but he's our 
it's the relationship that gets built through it. You may start that way, and many people do. God's the resource center. But friends, it's never, it never ends that way. It's the relationship with God. Third, God gets the glory. Why? Because he's a good God. And God then gives glory back to his children. Not because he has to, but because he delights in doing so. You and I don't do well with glory. We get vainglory and we get a taste of it and we, wanna, we crave it and we want to keep it for ourselves. God is glorious, receives all the glory, and what does he do? He gives glory back. If you read passages of the Bible where God's going to give glory to us or share a glory with us, it's unbelievable. We don't deserve a glory. And yet, it's at the very heart of the gospel promise. What does Jesus tell us he will say to us when we show up before the throne of God? Well done, good and faithful servant. What is he doing? He's sharing glory. He's glorifying us in the moment that we stumbled back to his throne to remind him that we wouldn't be there if it weren't for him. And he says, great job. Well done. See, the best way for us to labor is to labor in such a way that we don't get the glory. We honor each other, but we don't honor ourselves. We glory in one another, but we don't glory in ourselves. We speak well of each other, but we let another man's lips praise us. We seat other people in the places of honor at our house, but we never take a place of honor in anyone else's house. Do you see this? And the reason for this is because it's much better and it suits the Lord that we would be called up by him. We don't do well with glory that we've grasped, but we do well with glory we've received. Finally, we can be sure the project will be a long-term success because why? Because God is the one who's getting the glory for it. And he will be with us always. In closing, my last vineyard analogy. At the heart of all of this is what happens when God employs you in his service. Well, it's tough to hear, but I have to say it because it's the only pathway to real life and joy. He invites you into this great and glorious mission. But the starting line is an initiation, and it's at the highest level of commitment. It's death. He bids us to come and die. He says, you have to die to yourself. We have to follow Jesus into the grave. And you might think, my goodness, is this some sort of weird Illuminati stuff? You know, like, are you going to kill us? It's like this, this into the grave is the invitation of Christ. Follow him. Why? So that we can have resurrection life. Now, I want to tell you why God can call us into something like that. Because the vineyard analogy, the sowing and reaping, is at the core of the whole message of the Bible. Think of this. God made a world where you and I could go in our backyard today and take a little seed and shove it in the ground. And if we water it, and if it gets sunlight, all of a sudden out of nowhere, something will start sprouting. It will start growing. Jesus told us that what happens, the seed goes into the ground and dies, and then all of a sudden life springs up from it. Isn't it incredible? That's the world that God made. And then something happened. He made human beings. He made us. And what did he do? He took dirt, and he breathed into it, and then we came came from it. Adam came from this. And he made us, and we fell in this garden into death. And what happens to us? We return back to this dust that we were created from, but we fell And so then God had an intention. He sends his only son, the perfect seed. And what does he do? He dies. They bury him in the ground. The Apostles' Creed tells us he even descends so far as to go into hell itself. And then on the third day, he rises again to life. And a tree is branched out. Jesus told a a parable one time. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds. And when it grows, its branches will cover the earth and everyone will branch in in its tree limbs. 
The ultimate sowing and reaping principle is the gospel itself. God the Father sowed Christ the Son into the world so that the fruit of his blessings could be dispensed among us without end. You and I, listen to me, are sitting here because we reap what we have not sown. We reap what Christ has sown. We reap what the Father has sown. And every day we praise God for this. We sing bless God because he has sown his own body, his own blood, and we are the fruits of that tree. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you that we're going to get to celebrate the fruit of your tree and your labors. We thank you that even in our feeble attempts at laboring, God, you keep us around. You love us. I thank you that everyone under the sound of my voice, that you shed your blood, that they might come into your kingdom, that they might be welcomed into your family, that they might be so employed in your labor. And so help us now, my God, I ask that as we sing and as we take of your table, that we would picture ourselves as around a rehearsal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that we would consider amongst ourselves that which is wood and hay and stubble in our lives, and we would toss it away, and that which is gold and silver and costly stones. Help us to truly, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving glory to you, our God and Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.